You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Hi everyone, it's Julie Kerr here. I'm the producer of Inverse Podcast. I'm just popping in your ears briefly to let you know that if you listen to Inverse, this is simply our welcome mat to a wider community of people from all over the world. We connect throughout the week with Liberating Sunday School on the weekend that tends to focus on Indigenous texts and Subversive Seminary during the week which focuses on anti-racism formation. We also have an advanced anti-racism group who are currently studying the Africana Bible, a reading of the scriptures from the Vantage Point of Africa and the African diaspora. We record these episodes in community and we'd love to invite you into this space where you can have a chance to ask questions and to participate by being part of our Patreon community. If you're one of our patrons, you can listen to extended conversations with extra questions included, such as this snippet from an episode with Dr. Sally Douglas. I tend to um, refer to God with female pronouns simply in both um, theological contexts. Yeah, to meh, to disrupt. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, so in secular contexts especially because people think they know what Christianity is and that it's already stupid and rejecting it, but what they're rejecting is Santa on the, mm. you know, that Santification image of God. So it's just a helpful way of disrupting that. But then people can, uh, <laughs> some of the students came, some lay preacher students came to where I um, serve in a congregation and I hadn't even noticed that I'd referred to God or she somewhere in the worship. And one of them said to one of the um, members, oh, she's very, I can't remember what he's, very out there because <laughs> I'd, I'd referred to God as she. But, I mean, the, the worship, like the worship, the theology, everything was entirely, I would argue, grounded in the text and tradition and everything. And yet this one thing, even though people might say, oh, we don't mean it literally, well, we know God is beyond gender. It, it can be entirely terrifying. We know he's beyond gender. And let's leave it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what happened. Yeah. So I think there's an important disruption that needs to happen. Yeah. So that's just a little example of what you'll get if you're part of our Patreon community. All the information is in our show notes. Make sure you follow, rate and review this episode in iTunes. But for now, enjoy the following episode. I'm excited to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Sally Douglas. Sally's interdisciplinary research spans biblical studies and systematic theology as she reflexively engages with biblical and early church texts and the potential implications of re-engaging with often suppressed texts in contemporary context. Sally's doctoral excavation of early church Christology was published to international acclaim in the LNNTS series by TNT Clark Bloomsbury as early church understandings of Jesus as the female divine, the scandal of the scandal of particularity in 2016. Sally continues to research, publish, and lecture across biblical studies and theology, both nationally and internationally. Sally also teaches at Pilgrim Theological College. Sally has a whole range of recent publications, um, including Jesus's impact on understandings of gender, attending to first century dialogue, in the, in the impact of Jesus of Nazareth, historical, theological, and pastoral perspectives. And she has many more and also other uh, forthcoming publications coming. She teaches across a range of subjects, including Jesus, discipleship, and justice, 
cross and resurrection in earliest, earliest Christianity, Mark's gospel in context, and introducing the gospels. And we could say so much more, but we're really excited to uh, welcome you to Inverse Podcast. Welcome, Dr. Sally Douglas. Mm, thank you, Dr. Joy. Thank you, Jared. It's lovely to be with you both and everyone else. Yeah, we're really excited to have you with us, Sally. And as I was sharing before we started, um, uh, th there's so many aspects of your work that we'd like to explore, but we're, we're so pleased to have you during the series that we're doing on nonviolent atonements. And um, uh, I, I guess uh, to have your expertise speak into that. So maybe we'll start with the question around, when do you first remember hearing uh, the gospel and atonement articulated? Mm. I don't have a particular memory, but I think because of the way across denominations, so many of our prayers and songs or hymns are structured and written, it kind of absorb, you absorb it um, into mm -hmm. your skin without even necessarily hearing it. So I don't recall, you know, growing up with lots of uh, sermons addressing that particular topic, but it was certainly in the air and something that I was aware of and uh, was curious about from an early age yeah mm. yeah so I'm curious like as you think about you know the earliest that you can remember articulations of the gospel being explained like do you do you, do you have the sense that it was depicting God as uh, both God and discipleship really as violent and retributive or maybe more nonviolent and restorative? Like, how do you think mm. um, your early encounters and experiences with the gospel and atonement were being articulated? I think in the Uniting Church in Australia, which is the, a mainline Protestant tradition in Australia, the Methodists and Presbyterians and congregational churches came together in the 1970s. Uh, it wasn't uh, front and centre um, a, a violent atonement theology. Some some people, some clergy, obviously would have had that view, but I think there was also a silent like. So there might have been people who are uncomfortable with it, but they didn't have something else to offer. So yeah, I don't right. don't think it was necessarily um, replaced with a restorative kind of sense. It was much more like, oh, awkward silence, like <laughs> like after Good Friday worship. How do we how do we hold that? Um, what do we do with that? Yeah. yeah. And so for me, it came, so I grew up in the church and was, you know, all very churchy. And then I, I took a year off uni in after my first year of uni and did a, it was called the Order of St. Stephen. It was a year of sacrificial service in the Uniting Church where you were paid very, very little and you were, you were placed in different roles. And after that year, um, I left the church very angry and nothing extraordinarily bad happened at all. Just, um, they shouldn't have placed a 19 year old in a youth worker role with no training, you know, just normal yeah. kind of not great thinking through. And I made, made some lovely friends and there was you know, lots of things that came out of it. But I mean, in a way, I think I'm really glad for that time, even though it was very painful because um, I had the church on a pedestal and it entirely like the pedestal was broken, the bar, everything was broken. And I was just mm. angry in the wilderness at the church. And I, still maintain a sense that there was a god but i was very dubious about the nature of this god um so I, I wouldn't have known the term soteriology at the time but understandings of you know what is salvation what does it mean who is this god they were still live for me um and in that time i discovered the contemplative christian tradition particularly through the um the celtic christian tradition which i know has a twee not helpful 
conicide, but actually they're a beautiful, deep, very old resources to draw from. Amen. And then um, <laughs> in my late 20s, I was shot, like floored by experiencing a call to ministry. And I was just like, what the actual... And so I, I rang the minister who had married us and I said, and this has happened and I'm just, and she, her words were, I'm not surprised. I'm surprised it's happened so early because you're so angry at the church, but I'm not surprised. Hmm. And I was teaching full time, working with refugee children, but I started a year of discernment, which is part of the only church. You can't just apply to be a minister. You have to test it out pretty rigorously. And then I started some theology as part of that year, en enrolled at United, it was called the United Faculty of Theology at that time, the Melbourne. And the really big question for me, um, both in that discernment time and then when I was accepted as a candidate for ministry, was what, is, what does salvation mean? Because mm. for me, by that time, and it became really, really clear in that time that if it meant signing up to a violent atonement theology, I was out. Mm -hmm. If this is who God is, I don't want, I actually, even if it's the truth, I actually don't want to bar of this so it meant that I had to go very very deep and um, do lots of wrestling within myself but also with lecturers um, and early church writings like biblical texts but also early church writers to really engage with it because there was no way like it's one thing to do theology for yourself because it can just be fun and curious and you can push into whatever you like to, a, to an extent but if you're a candidate for ministry you're mm -hmm. you're going to be making promises to serve a community and uphold certain views and I knew I couldn't I couldn't sign on. I couldn't get up and say those things if I hadn't um, come to a point of um, a genuine space of having an articulation of the cross and of not just the cross of soteriology that I was comfortable with, that I could um, kind of, in a sense, you know, put my name to risk my life for, commit my life for. Um, I couldn't, if I didn't have that, I couldn't go forward. Yeah, yeah. So that's when it really became a big deal for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sally, excuse the theological puns, but you, you mentioned the cross. Um, yeah. So if we can go to the, the crux of, yeah. of the issue. Um, I, I'm, I was interested to hear you articulate that gap year that you had of service as sacrificial um, yes. ministry, because that in itself, um, uh, and I know uh, one of your recent works, um, uh, you quote our Lord quoting the, the prophets um, that um, mercy is better than sacrifice. Yeah. Um, would you speak a little to uh, how do you articulate um, how the life of Christ saves now mm. um, and, and maybe contrast that to if we can use um, those words that Jesus provides, uh, mercy versus sacrifice sure. could you set up um that in response to how others might yeah traditionally you almost use the language of um osmosis before but absorbing through your skin um mm. uh understandings of um atonement that uh are not that jesusy yeah so um before i respond can i um share with people because that might be helpful uh, and you may have already talked about this in other episodes, but for me, the the beginning of the freedom, because I, I felt like, like I was approaching it at that time of thinking, am I a heretic or can I be faithful? They were the kind of um, mm. dilemmas that I thought were the truth, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then I reread the creeds, like yeah. the Apostles' <laughs> Creed, and I was like, hang on, 
there's no violent atonement theology in the creed at yeah. all, at all. And so the notion that you must believe in one particular soteriology, one particular understanding of the cross, it's a second order. It's not first order mm. in terms of our theology. Um, so both the Apostles' Creed, which just says, you know, he was born and he suffered and was crucified, died and was read, and then on the third day he descended to the hell and rose. Like that's the core and, you know, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Mother, Father, God, in, through whom all things are made. That's the core stuff. And, and that, it's, that it's pointing towards um, an ultimate uh, new risen life, you know, for all. That, and the same with the Nicene Creed. It doesn't go in, in, you know, for us and for our salvation, but there's no discussion about how that's un, understood. Um, so that was the first part of it opening up for me to going, oh, hang on, this is a false binary, thinking that it's mm. about believing in this one particular um, construct of the cross or not. And then that led me into this um, really um, authentic deep dive with the actual text because so often we come to text being told what they're saying and if we're not careful we agree we go oh yeah that's clearly what it's saying when when often it's not and so I'm when I'm teaching I'm all and teaching in at uni but also teaching in the parish I serve bring your questions like you're investigators this is about detective work this is about wrestling and engaging and noticing the contradictions and asking second questions and so the next thing that I would say around so you were pointing to Matthew and Jesus saying twice in that gospel I don't you know go and learn what it means I desire mercy not sacrifice explicitly claims he says who and how God is um that isn't a footnote <laughs> this is integral to that whole gospel and so when um when i took that sort of cross and resurrection what i did with students was take them through each of the gospels and help them to see in each of the gospels there is a different understanding of what's happening with the cross and how that is salvific and more than the cross i think it's a really fundamental flaw when any theology begins with the cross because that's not where the christian proclamation begins the, the christian proclamations begins with the outrageous, outrageous claim that somehow God comes to us in Jesus. Like it begins with the incarnation. Um, and that's just as much in Mark's gospel, which is which is um, sometimes labelled as having a, a low Christology as, as with John's gospel. In each of the gospels, these writers are saying, there is something about this one that makes this one the holy one, makes this one, and there's different languages used, the Holy One, Emmanuel, Word of God, Son of God, all these different names, but they're all pointing to this claim. So that any understanding of the cross has to be grounded in the incarnation that somehow God comes to us in Jesus and the life that Jesus lives. Like the, if, the, if it was only about the cross, the Gospels would be four pages long. <laughs> and then he died, you know, and then he was raised. They're not. They spend the bulk of the time talking about how Jesus is how Jesus teaches, what he teaches, how Jesus interacts with people and um, heals people. What are Jesus' priorities? Oh, look. And if we take Matthew as a case example, so Matthew's gospel begins with that long sermon on the mount where Jesus is like, love your enemies, pray for your enemies. And, you know, this shocking kind of claim to um, nonviolent resistance, you know, turn the other cheek. Mm -hmm. But then Jesus does it. Mm -hmm. He doesn't just teach it. He then continues to embody this love for um, the disciples and strangers. And, uh, um, and it's pretty robust love for the religious authorities. Like it's telling, you know, speaking truth to power. 
but then even in death in Matthew's gospel, it's so striking when the, they come to arrest Jesus because each of the yeah. gospels ends different at that point. In Matthew alone, Jesus says, you know, the, the disciples just don't get it at all. They've got their swords out. They're, you know, ready for battle. And Jesus is like, don't you know? I could call on legions of angels. Like, this is not about being powerless. This is actually about the choice to embody power in a different way. Mm-hmm. And Jesus does that. So he says at the start of the gospel, love your enemy, turn the chair. And then bang, when everything's, you know, going off the rails and it's terrifying, Jesus embodies that same radical nonviolent love and actually does it. Not because he doesn't have a choice in Matthew's gospel. He clearly does. But he chooses to embody that radical nonviolence even in death and then in resurrection. Like I think if I was Jesus, I'd be like, seriously, Peter, where the hell were you? But he even embodies forgiveness, you know, like the, the love and the forgiveness continue right, right through. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is called Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is who and how God is. This, it's mercy. It's mercy all the way down. So I, I do not know how people do the gymnastics to impose a, a violent atonement theology on Matthew's gospel when it's so clearly not about that. It's about the one, the Holy One, the God is with us, one who embodies who and how God is. And guess what? It's mercy all the way down in incarnation, in living, in dying and in rising. That's good. That's good. Beautiful, Sally. Um, do you want me to, uh, I, if it's helpful, I could just, as a complete contrast to Matthew, give a tiny idea about what is going on in Mark's gospel from my perspective, because it's really different again. Um, yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Yeah. So because because I think for me, the, the, as I said before, the first shock was going, oh, my goodness, this is not in the creed, so this is not a first-order thing. And the second part of that, un, un, I don't want to say unravelling, or maybe unravelling, you know, like peeling back the layers was going, oh, it's not even in the gospel. Like it's actually not in the gospel. So um, yeah. I'll just touch on John for two seconds. So, for example, you know, John, the author of John, whoever that author is, talks often or more than once about Jesus as the lamb that, you know, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the Lord. But the whole setting for that in, in the, in the, if anyone's been journeying through to Easter is Passover. Right. When the lamb is for um, protection and liberation as the people are in slavery and then are freed, it's nothing, nothing to do with sacrifice for sin, like nothing at all. Mm. And it's just, it just makes me quite cranky when people misuse the text to the, because it slots in with their own, assumptions or what they've been told or what they want to believe you know um because that's that's not what's going on in the text if someone wants to to construct their own theology that's fine but don't pretend that's what the author of john's talking about because it's hmm. this imagery of liberation and that leads into so in mark's gospel as uncomfortable as it might be i suspect particularly for um whiteies and kind of liberal <laughs> whiteies lowercase l liberal whiteies in mark's gospel the question really centrally is about cosmic forces. And for the author of Mark, um, there's, there are real cosmic forces threatening in, in their worldview, in their cosmology, um, demons and uh, evil forces. And Jesus is the one who liberates from those. Jesus is the one. And so that, you know, the first miracle is, is um, 
like the first some in some of the first movies, it's exorcism and it's these these demons yeah. who know who Jesus is. And so what we do with that is another second interesting question. But what we shouldn't be doing is assuming um, that it's not there, pretending that it's not there. And I think, and in other early church texts, in the biblical text, but also in other early writers, that's absolutely the understanding of the of the cross and the language of ransom is used, ransom and rescue. And it's not from God's wrath. It's from e- cosmic evil. Like that's, that's the view. Um, and so I think even just knowing a little bit about this helps us to know that it isn't option A or option B. It there are a whole lot of understandings about the cross and that makes sense because the cross is utterly unexpected and utterly appalling like jesus dies at the hands of a a state sanctioned murder by the the ruling elite by the empire and yet they're claiming that this is the god one like those things don't go Mm. together and so especially for those early church writers who know all about um, crucifixion, like it's happening all the time. It's not just like Jesus was the only person and those two people next to him. So it's terrifying. It's a threat. It's an, so he's killed as an insurrectionist and um, trying to make sense of that. And it's not, it's not a straight line in the first Testament in the old Testament that this is the, how the Messiah will be like, it's shocking. And so it makes sense that different communities would understand that event in different ways, but also the same authors would understand it in different ways at different times. Like Paul, yeah. Paul uses different, because it's shocking and uh, doesn't have a one a one sentence explanation. You know, it continually shocks. Is it, Sally, I'm very aware that Drew has another question for you, but okay. you, you've opened up this. Um, uh, wonderful and Drew, if we can just hang here for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's I, hang. I find it um, fascinating uh, um, that you brought up um, the, the creeds and particularly uh, what you've just articulated in terms of Mark's gospel has a place for the harrowing of hell. Um, while that stuff that um, is in the creed that isn't in many people's uh, atonement theologies as you encounter yeah. them in um, uh, Western uh, neoliberal economic expressions of Christianity. There's just like, if you do say the creed, you don't think about Jesus descending into hell um, in in terms of atonement uh, theologies, uh, unless you're orthodox, really. Like, uh, I mean, Mm. um, right across the board, that isn't a major feature. Um, what do you think taking the creeds um, as a lens to um, uh, atonement theologies might provide? Because I, I find one of the things that is fascinating about your work is how seriously you do take the patristics. Like as, yeah. a, as a feminist theologian, uh, you, you're not seeking a reconstruction that isn't in dialogue with um, uh, the origins of uh, Christianity in its various expressions. Can you talk to that a little? Because I find that aspect of your work really fascinating. So I just, I, I love the early church writers. I so encourage everyone to read them. What's really interesting with the creeds, and I, I, and I wish this was talked about more, um, and I think it actually becomes problematic if people just recite the creeds weekly without actually an opportunity to engage with it and bring questions. It can just 
anyway, that's another whole conversation. But each of the lines in the creeds is seeking to challenge another view. Like they're not flat statements. Each of them is in dialogue and sometimes pretty brutal dialogue with other really popular views at the time. So, for example, um, I think one of the problems, I mean, there are many, many problems with violent atonement theology, but one of them, the one of the central ones for me, is the Christology is all wrong. They actually don't take seriously that notion that somehow God comes to us in Jesus. So it's not some far off, um, so often in violent atonement theology, it's this far off God, um, usually constructed as male, who sends the son. Um, and it doesn't take seriously, no, no, that's not what, that's not what early church writers are saying. Like, so in some of the earliest texts we have in the whole, so far, unless there's a new discovery, um, somewhere in a desert, some of the earliest texts we have so far are hymns that are embedded in the Second Testament. So the Colossians hymn, Colossians yeah. 1, 15 to 20, for example. So it's early enough that the author's then quoting it and, and people probably started singing along as that part was quoted. And John's prologue is another example that could be a bit later. So let's stay with Colossians. It's unbelievable. It claims that this guy who was killed by the state, through him all things came into being. Like, what the? I mean, it's one thing to claim that he was raised. It's another to say, no, actually, this is the God one who was before all other things and is now present yeah. in human flesh. So atonement theology, I think, is really, um, it's deeply problematic and I would say veering on the heretical because it doesn't take seriously the incarnation, which is core to, to Christian understanding. And that is a huge part of the creeds because people were understandably, and I've had really interesting dialogue um, with a Muslim guy one time who was really outraged at the Christian view that we claim, like he, he got the incarnation better than so many Christians. Yeah. Outraged God by suffers. the view that God suffers. Outraged. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, well, thank God you're actually getting what we're <laughs> saying. And right. totally fine not to agree, but thank God you actually get the point. Because, yeah. And that's in the creeds, it's the same thing. No, no, um, God wasn't, Jesus wasn't just an image of a human person who pretended to suffer, which was a really popular view at the time. No, this is the God one and the God one suffers. Mm. So that just, if we take that seriously, that means all our images of God are on a cloud zapping people. It's basically Zeus. Right. Or yeah. Superman. Sally, um, I've quoted you before. Um, Drew, Sally has this great line where she talks about it's basically Santa Claus without the red suit. It is. I, I've invented a term. I call it santification. It's yeah. Santa, yeah, it's the santification of God. Um, and it's heresy. Um, and in the, in atonement theology, from um, and look, maybe as I continue to evolve and journey in my faith, I'll come to this place of really um, a new place with atonement theology. But for me, as yet, I continue to see how it doesn't take the incarnation seriously and it very, very easily slips into child abuse. Mm -hmm. So God is the father who sends the child to get abused. Um, yeah. And that is profoundly problematic. Mm. And the images of God that lie within that. So if we were to take seriously the author of Matthew, who says uh, that Jesus says, I des you know, quoting Old Testament, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That means that the whole, the incarnation the living, the teaching, the healing, the challenging, the cross, the non-violent dying and the rising all embody the mercy of God. It's what God desires and who God is. And that's who she calls us 
um, to be like, to be like Jesus is to enter into that way of mercy. But we don't get big stickers or prizes for going that way. Like it's a harder way to go because the call into mercy means that we can't rest in our certainty all the time and can't tell other people they're excluded. And, you know, like it takes away a lot of power to take seriously that God is utterly merciful. And I think that's the real rub for some, for some people if they've been brought up that if you don't, that Jesus died for my sins and if you don't believe that you're going to hell, like if that is the entire construct of their Christian faith and you're saying, well, that's actually not, I don't think that's faithful, people can be terrified to engage with, well, what is faith and then cling more tightly to that, I suspect. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have students who, you know, I mean, the idea that God is not going to eternally torment people for some of them is problematic and they don't want to have anything to do with a God that yeah. will, I mean, it's just that, like you'd think it'd be the opposite, but no, they need a God that will eternally torment others. Um, and so I think that um, there's something to say about our view of God and yeah. just the disease and distorted things that we've inherited along the way in our traditions. And so the other thing I was going to say, which I don't even know exactly how she does it. Well, another guest coming on soon is my own colleague, so I should know. But um, Sharon Putt, she, in her new book, I know that she engages the Apostles' Creed as well. Um, and so and so we'll get to, she'll be in the yeah. series uh, soon enough to, so I'll be curious that she's kind of resonating with some of the things that you're saying. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, but um, I, I love, I love hearing all that you said as you interpreted and kind of brought, you know, Matthew and Mark's gospel um, and, and what we see happening there. But, but, you know, of course, you know, um, many folks are convinced that, that the atonement theology is clearly penal substitutionary atonements and they've got, you know, different verses that they're going to quote. And so I'm curious um, if like what passages, what scriptures have given you the most grief or whether in the past or present or maybe in your community, like what, what are those texts that, you know, that keep coming back and just make you, uh, and you just got to kind of deal with, are there particular mm -hmm. texts that, um, that, that, uh, kind of at least, uh, have forced you to wrestle and to articulate anew or, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Great question. So for any of us here who have journeyed through Good Friday, the Isaiah passages are right. obviously they're there and that I tend to have a kind of um, view when I'm, it's not always possible, but when I'm leading worship, that if there isn't space to talk about it, then it's better not to always go near the difficult passage because if you're just leaving in someone's lap and then there's no addressing of it, you know, that's, really problematic so that in Isaiah 53 but I just wanted to read because it it's so oh, interesting is one word for it um so Isaiah 53 10 yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain when you make his life an offering for sin he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days but there's a footnote saying um yeah. with the line about made it offer it life and offering for sin the Hebrew is uncertain here and so when there's right. this kind of pretending that it's sewn up I mean, there are so many things I could say this, but one, the first is let's not pretend the text is clear when it's ambiguous and, and when we're being told that there are footnotes saying we actually have no idea what this is talking about, let's acknowledge that front and centre. Um, the other thing that I think is really, and, and this is not just in relation to atonement theology, um, deeply troubling to me is the way in which Christians have misused the First Testament, the Old mm -hmm. Testament, as a proof text. Um, so take a verse out of context, 
um, turn it into a nice little weapon and then use it against another group, whether that's um, white people justifying slavery, whether that's um, men justifying um, that women are somehow polluted or um, that gay people are inherently wrong or you know, sinful. It's just outrageous that we treat our Jewish brothers and sisters with such, and their sacred texts with such disdain. Mm-hmm. I remember once I met a Jewish guy. This is like a story of when I met him. But um, I met a, a Jewish guy and an older guy and he his family, like a, a sibling of his, he was an older guy, a sibling had married into a, um, he described them as a Pentecostal family. So he had lots of interactions with these other Christians. And he just said to me, um, it's to- it doesn't make sense that Jesus would be killed. Like, that's not how the Messiah is supposed to be. And I'm like, I know. he kind of of looked at me like because he'd not heard well my perception was he hadn't had a conversation with a christian who was totally in agreement with him about it's not obvious it's not clear and that's i mean this passage in isaiah for example so not only is there actual that those verses um they're, they're ambiguous within themselves about what's going on these are sacred prophecies um that might have nothing to do with jesus like we we choose to interpret them in this way and they were incredibly important for early church writers including some second testament writers as they tried to make sense of the horror of the cross like thank god mm. they were there for them to go oh my goodness this helps us to understand what the hell went on um because i think we need to be honest about the fact that well it's really clear in mark's gospel like mark the author of mark who like i think he's i really encourage you all to read mark out loud because it's full of jokes like it's it's both you're supposed <laughs> to hear the jokes and laugh yeah. And some of the jokes are on Peter and the other disciples, like they stuff up all the time. And one of the constant wrestlings for them is like like Peter in particular, um, but not just Peter, James and John as well, can't cope with the idea that Jesus is going to suffer. Like that is not what they want in Messiah. They believe Jesus is Messiah. Yeah. But you're going to lead us into liberation and we're going to overthrow Rome, which is an entirely fair assumption if you're living under oppression like that mm. i don't you know let's not be mean to them like that makes him t- and it fits better with um prophecies about messiah you know the king will come the new reign will begin like this is like woohoo and instead they get this guy who's killed who looks like an abject failure so it's understandable um that isaiah becomes like a touchstone passage but i think we need to hold it gently and know that for jewish people that in the past and now that's not how they are hearing that text and there are multiple ways in which we can hear a text like that yeah sally that's so important um one of the challenges uh i've faced in seeking to pastor and articulate uh, an atonement a vision of atonement that looks more like Jesus that does Jesus like mm. justice instead of <laughs> some form of punitive justice to Jesus yeah. um, is uh, often well a bit like you, you mentioned growing up in the United Church when the gap is left um, uh, and it, it isn't uh, in that vacuum isn't filled with something that people will revert to flat readings of Isaiah 53, which um, lack the, um, the nuance uh, or are unable to laugh at the jokes that you're talking yeah. about in, in Mark's gospel. Um, when seeking to articulate um, a nonviolent atonement 
uh, or a nonviolent um, uh, articulation of the gospel, where do you start? Like how um, the the constructive program of what it is to articulate that, where would you take people? Um, I'm tempted to ask for, for certain things um, uh, because there's some things that I love so much about um, your scholarship, particularly like our Lord referring to himself as Sophia um, uh, in Matthew's gospel and what that does to um, take seriously Jesus' own articulation of his own self-understanding. But I'll let you answer any which way you want to. Where, where do you start in articulating nonviolent atonements? So um, for me, when I began that, uh, so, sorry, can I just say, I think what happens, and, and I'll be interested to see if other people, if this rings true, but for many people who have been brought up in Christian faith or have been a Christian for some time, and then the violent atonement theology becomes a thing they can't stand, um, what often happens is the way in which they think that could be addressed is to um, dismiss Jesus' divinity. Like that seems like a really, really common, right. common, you know, well, the problem is we don't want the violent God sending the son. So if Jesus is just a good moral teacher about how to be nice to each other, then we kind of sidestep the question of what the cross means. Um, it just becomes mm -hmm. the political consequence for speaking justice and mercy, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know in, in other contexts, but certainly in Australia, I've had lots of conversations where that's, that's the kind of logic that's imposed. And so when I began my um, doctoral research, I was really, really curious. I'd heard a tiny bit about Sophia, but I was a little bit um, suspicious. I thought like, is this like a tiny reference in one place and people are making a big, a big deal out of this female defined figure. What, what is this? So that was one of the questions. But the other question was, what if it's true? Like so part of a kind of progressive, um, it's been a very popular view in the progressive kind of world of Spong and others is that um, if you picture an escalator, so Jesus in the early church was understood as a good guy or a prophet, and then he gets um, divinized over time. Yeah. Like that's a this super popular view. Bart yeah. Ehrman's recent re-articulation of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bart and I engage yeah. a little bit in my book. <laughs> now, I can see one of our in-house uh, patristic scholars. Um, yeah, it's Dr. not Josh true at Rockway, all. Josh just going, boo. Yeah. <laughs> Thumbs down. So for me, I wanted to go to the text and go, well, let's see, like, what, what's going on? And, and interestingly, and people like Bart and other people from that world, they link very much the arguing partner is violent atonement theology. Like, they go hand in hand a lot mm. of the time. That's what, they're, that's what the actual issue is. So when I went back to the earliest texts, for example, like the Colossians hymn, the Philippians hymn, the, the prologue, and there are other passages around. So these tiny embedded verses within the Second Testament, um, they are so high. Jesus is understood yeah. as the fullness of the deity, the word made flesh. The one, I mean, as I said before, the one through whom all things come into being. Like You can't get higher than that. Mm. Um, so that was the first going, well, it's not true. It doesn't mean that Bart Ehrman has to personally believe that but let's be honest about the text no not to pick on but um, as an example of that worldview like it's one thing to not agree that's fine but it's it's disingenuous to deny the text that's right and this yeah. is for whatever reason there's really 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 early jesus communities are celebrating jesus in the most extraordinary language imaging jesus as god um, worshiping jesus um, as somehow a, um, the embodiment of god the word in flesh 
So that's where I would start any any theology of salvation. It has to for Christians. It has to start with this um, earth shattering, like breaking into um, our patch as humans in flesh in God. So God with skin on is another way I would put that. And so, mm. um, and what's then in my ongoing research was being shocked really at how many of those earliest hymns, both in the in the first in the Second Testament, but also in other early texts like one Clemens, possibly the Didache and, and Justin Martyr a little bit later in Origin, they all explicitly say Jesus is Sophia. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the, this is holy wisdom who's talked about in Proverbs um, at length, but in other places as well, as being with God in the beginning of all things, um, who calls to people, you know, come listen to me, who <laughs> provides the feast of bread and wine, um, read Proverbs 8, uh, everybody that this is who comes to us in Jesus. And in Matthew, Jesus speaks as her, saying, come to me, all you who are weary and find rest. And so to, to continue to come back to, like it's not just agreeing that Jesus is a God one, that's faith isn't like an intellectual test, you know, like a multiple choice test, like A, do you believe Jesus is the God one? B, it's actually far more confronting because if we take seriously that somehow God does come to us in Jesus, then not only does this reveal the nature of God to us as the feast maker and the forgiver and the includer and the challenger to those with power, it's also a call to join in. Yeah. So it's soteriology is, has direct links with discipleship. Yeah. So and that's where I feel like there's been so little discussion. So it's not about being nice to get into heaven or be kind um, because it's a good thing for society. It's like, no, this is, this is the nature of the universe. Mm. This is actually the currency of the universe. And when we live into um, radical kindness, which can mean hard words and challenging all those other things as well, we're not talking about being nice, like, you know, robust kindness um, seeking the well-being of all, we like it's hard work and it's annoying, could get us killed, but we are living into the truth at the heart of the universe and therefore our own truth as well, like our own actual truth. And it's like the ongoing work of our egos getting um, challenged and remade because it's no longer about how do I look, I have to be right, I've saved them, you know, how many scalps have I got for Jesus, that kind of vile stuff like really vile assumptions about people to hi other person made an image of god Mm. how can you teach me and what can i offer to you and where is the spirit at work between us wow and to to make explicit um your language uh, about uh, the universe is taking those texts seriously um uh, those ancient that uh, it, it's it's not somehow that the first person of the Trinity creates and the second person uh, shows up to do something else. But what these ancient hymns are insisting is that yeah. nothing was created that wasn't created through him. And yeah. so what we what we get in this crucified Messiah, everything in reality uh, uh, re- reflects that or is called to reflect that. Um, and that's a radical critique of everything that doesn't look like that, Like which is quite different to... Um, you know, the, uh, in some quarters, it was kind of popular uh, to go, maybe it's like ISIS worship in, um, and this is yeah. worship of like, um, uh, 
you know, a minority report uh, of um, uh, paganism creeping in with a feminine divine. But yeah. Sally, you, like your claim is not a, a, a feminine divine. <laughs> the title is female divine mm. um, in relation to Jesus. Um, mm. That's even more challenging, right? Yeah, totally. Could, would you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, first, I'll speak to what you said about yeah, the origins of woman wisdom. So this female image, female character is um, in Proverbs and Sirach and Baruch and the Wisdom of Solomon, another text which is an intertestamental text. And scholars continue to debate, um, so First Testament scholars, why is this female divine figure in um, Jewish sacred texts, you know, monotheistic Israel? And there are some who argue um, Isis, the goddess Isis worship was really popular and it was a um so it's just drawing from that and so it's an import it's It's an import and even get get this one I love this one some people say um that Jewish leaders were trying to make themselves relevant does this sound any does this ring any bells make the church (laughs) relevant again to make Judaism relevant so Isis is popular so we'll just bring our own Isis in to try and attract young men to stay within Jewish faith um I think a more nuanced view which uh, which is interesting which is entirely in contrast to Again, is that as Israel is in exile, king imagery for God is pretty painful. You, know, you don't have your king anymore when you're, when you're in exile. And as worship returned to the home as the centre of worship, um, imagery of, of mother becomes more popular, except that Sophia, Hochma, woman wisdom, isn't imaged in really maternal ways at all very much, but she's much more of a teacher and a leader um, and host. Which then, is fascinating and worth pausing on, right, Sally? Like, yeah. um, because, uh, like, our Lord in um, Matthew 23, after, like, just ripping through the religious authorities, his own community, and just, like, blowing up, you brood of vipers, you whitewash tombs, yeah. and then he goes to articulating his, his own call and talks about a hen gathering chicks, like, yeah. so, yes, it is um, uh, a feminine imagery for um, the, the role of Messiah, but yeah. it, it's, not, it's not a safe union kind no. of analysis of <laughs> it, it, the, the feminine is reserved for um, the caring, uh, yeah. while the masculine is a real leadership, that kind of. Yeah. This is actually it's, far more yeah. subversive than that. It, totally. And exactly. So it's not a patriarchal construct of what a woman is. Exactly. Um, yeah. Interestingly, that passage in Matthew 23, we're not, um, so there's an equivalent in Luke as well. And in Luke, in that passage, Jesus is, you know, describing religious authorities as all these um, pretty challenging things. And then says, as wisdom said, I will send the prophet. So it's quoting Sophia in Luke. Mm. In Matthew, Jesus speaks as her. I yes. And prophets and I mean, it's mine. Like, this is when my mind was blown about, oh, my word. Like, so the author of Matthew assume, doesn't explain, by the way, Sophia is this character from um, he, the, the First Testament. The author assumes everyone knows who Sophia is. It, so, and same with the author of Luke as well. The, um, the other thing, that's just the, those reasons about why she's there. So then some argue that there was an Asherah cult, there was goddess worship within Judaism, and that's why woman wisdom is there. My own personal view is we do not know. And let's pretend, let's not pretend that we do know why she's there. Yeah. Let's actually just hold the reality that for whatever reason, no matter how much it challenges our assumptions about ancient Israel, she's present in the text and she's mm-hmm. not turned into a bloke. And she's not taken out. Mm. 
And I think that tells us that one of two things or possibly both at the least. It tells us that she was important to the authors, important enough to include and not be edited out, even though it's challenging, or she was important enough for the communities that they're writing to that they knew they couldn't edit her out or both. Um, but rather than us pretend to know why she's present, which I think in a way seeks to um, keep her in a box, argue her away, contain her, let's just go, oh my word, isn't this amazing that this female divine figure is present in the First Testament? And um, the evidence indicates that this, uh, James Dunn of fame, biblical mm -hmm. scholar, says, you know, it's clear that for Paul, wisdom Christology is the most important Christology as he makes sense of who and how. Wow. It is his. Like it's a, it's a common view. This is the other extraordinary thing when I was doing the research was how commonly wisdom Christology is acknowledged by biblical scholars, but it's also suppressed at the same time. So Bart yeah. Lehman calls her it, for example. She's never images it, she's she. Or they just don't acknowledge that she's female. So really erudite, interesting scholars. I just felt personally betrayed <laughs> when I was doing the research because I'm travelling along with them. And then when it comes to they acknowledge here, Jesus is imaged as uh, personified wisdom, but they don't say, and by the way, she's a woman. And so if you were reading that text without all that knowledge, you wouldn't know. Mm. And I think it's a much more interesting question to go, well, how how and why did this become important and and what might it mean for how we continue to understand who jesus is and what it might mean in our own lives and i mean it makes sense really that jesus image just her because so much of what jesus does is the making bread available to all giving the wine so i mean john's gospel is entirely saturated in wisdom christology from beginning to end Jesus as the feast maker, as the one with the words of life, as the one who calls people to come and find rest for their souls. Like that's what one wisdom does in Sirach. Like it's, it just weaves throughout the whole, um, throughout the Gospels, but also in Paul's letters and elsewhere in the hymns. So there's so, and it's such a, such a healing thing to engage with this. And for one, it um, disrupts the Santa narrative, you know, like, you can't keep your Santa gods if you're taking Jesus seriously as the female divine embodied in flesh. Yeah. Mm. Wow. That's good. That's good. So I'm, I'm really, I, one of the things that we were really excited about even before we started uh, officially recording was just the way that your scholarship, I mean, you bring biblical studies, the patristics, thinking theologically, but then you also care about like practice right yeah. so i'm really interested in um like as we think about you know all that's going on in our society um where do you start in challenging theologies that accommodate domination colonization mm -hmm. supremacy violence i'm curious how how these things pull together and, and how that relates to these challenges in our world today great question i i think part of um I feel like part of our role is letting people know about the earliest church. I'm not saying that we need to, I'm not pretending that the early church was perfect, like there was heaps of problems. Um, and I'm not pretending that the view that we get of the authors that we have is necessarily the whole story. However, there are certain key things that really help us. And one of them, for example, in the earliest church, you couldn't be a soldier and a Christian. And so there was a really clear conviction that to be a follower of Jesus meant you could not kill. You could not engage in violence. Um, and Justin Mutter, who 
I have so much time for. So he um, born around 100. So maybe John's gospel was written, maybe not, but you know, like he's pretty early philosopher, really um, sophisticated writer, tries different philosophical schools, becomes a Christian and then writes these amazing letters, one to the emperor, trying to saying, please, can you stop hassling us? We're actually not cannibals because that was a really common view that Christians were eating body and blood in their worship. And um, no, we're not going to give, <laughs> we're not going to do sacrifices at your local temples. Because remember the whole culture, so the whole culture is part of a sacrificial culture in Greco-Roman world, not so much in Jewish traditions, but um, there were lots of offerings we often in Jewish traditions, they were Thanksgiving offerings. But in Greco-Roman worlds, you went to particular temples. If you wanted a good crop, you took an offering here. And if you wanted to have a baby, you took another offering here. Like the whole system is about um, God bribery, really, God's bribery. <laughs> and him saying, no, we won't do your um, sacrifices. And then people being terrified because they thought the gods were going to smash the villages. You know, they're going to send a plague or a fire or something. So Christians are called pagans in the early church because they won't do these offerings to all these other gods which makes um, the call of Jesus all the more astonishing on, in those narratives of the Last Supper. Instead of the God one saying, bring me your offerings, Jesus entirely flips the whole construct on its head and says, right. I'm, I'll give you my body. This is the God one giving us um, God's flesh, God's being to sustain us. And you don't have to bring anything to get it. You don't have to. It's extraordinary. So, um, I feel like it calls us into when we participate in Holy Communion to being, um, you know, play on words. As we remember, we are remembered, we are reconstituted, we are put back together. We are, as we tell the story, we are restoried yep. into a new story, which is not about scarcity and not about domination. Um, and in terms of the implications for our own lives, it, if we take seriously that Jesus is the goal one and, and this goal one says, follow me, that means becoming more and more like Christ. So, um seeking to use so, and we know that jesus is not powerless so i think that's a false it's not powerful or powerless but jesus uses power for others um to lift them up to include them to make you know to clear the crowd to make space for the person who's been pushed to the edges to challenge the powerful so for each of us there'll be i think there'll be times in our lives when we're being called by jesus to get up and to stand up and to speak out. And other times we would just move aside so that someone else can get a space. Like, you know, at different times in a different context, we we are the powerful ones or the powerless ones. And I think that that takes constant hard work. And for me, obviously, I think contemplative prayer is part of that hard work of letting God um, speak to us and challenge us and reform us restore restore us so that we can become more like jesus which is going to be about becoming more merciful and braver probably a bit more problematic uh, and and self-giving but not not little doormats walking around everywhere you know beautifully mm. put sally this is super exciting for us and i have so many other questions but i'm aware that um people have got up at all different times across uh, different time zones in hope of um asking you some questions uh do, do you have time for that yeah that's fine go for it um sally uh it, given uh, this part we we leave for um uh, the community that contributes um to inverse i was wondering uh maybe as a, a way of uh 
Benedictine before we bounce. Um, would you, this isn't abstract for so many people, this conversation about nonviolent atonement um, uh, uh, rips at things that are, are deep within so many. Um, I was wondering, would you be willing to pray for, for us and our listeners um, before we go to a question time? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, with, with those pastoral concerns in mind. Hmm. I invite us all just to take a moment to steady ourselves. To take some deeper breaths. To be in our good bodies in this moment. Holy One, Sacred Three, you come to us in Jesus and upend all our expectations. We bring our yearnings to you. The truth of our tears shed and unshed. You call us to pray for enemies and so in this moment we do. For those who speak in violence or act in violence, for those who profit for violent, from violent systems, call them to account. May there be a crack in their armour. May they pay attention to your spirit calling them to be changed, to turn around, to repent. You, you know the desires of our hearts, dear God. And we know that you implant in us your desires for flourishing and healing. And you know what each of us need right now. In the silence, we name this to you. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse. 